Guys, thanks. Uh, last week, we were talking about Nehemiah and this uh, amazing person who God just raised out of nowhere to do some incredible work for the kingdom, for Jerusalem, for the children of Israel, and to help them to rebuild the broken walls. And that, I guess, in a sense, is the, is the theme for which we've been speaking these uh, next few weeks. And uh, the theme of looking outside of our doors, and you'll see broken walls everywhere. Many people, these are physical walls that have been broken as a result of stuff that has gone on recently. Some people, they're relational walls that have got messed up as a result of something going wrong. Some people, they're physical walls. Some people, they're psychological walls. They're mental walls. But there are walls all around us that are very severely broken. Nehemiah heard about the broken walls of Jerusalem. He couldn't take it, and he decided he needed, under the hand of God, to do something to help restore order back there in Jerusalem. So we want to pick up from there. Last week we spoke about the problem of broken walls. We spoke about the fact that broken walls are broken, maybe because of one of three reasons. Maybe the walls have been neglected, and over a period of time the wall have come, walls have come down simply because they have been neglected. We often see that in Christians' lives. We see how people just neglect their Bible readings, their prayer, and the disciplines of our faith get neglected and it's not long before the cracks begin to develop. Some people just leave the gate open and the enemy come in and they do their thing and you die from within. And then some people sadly get destroyed, the walls of their lives get destroyed because of an enemy bigger than themselves. War happens and some big enemy comes by and smashes their lives to pieces. Maybe it's because a relationship has gone wrong, a business person has ripped you off. Maybe it's because there's been a death or you've You've been given a, a poor bill of health. I don't know what it is, but there are so many different ways that the walls of our lives come down, and that's the tragedy of it. Then we spoke about the passion of Nehemiah. We spoke about the fact that when we see broken walls, there are four things that could possibly happen. Look outside the doors of your home, and you will probably feel quite bad that you live in safe and secure, and the people outside are, are not You'll probably feel quite sad because you'll see the devastation that broken walls leaves people's lives in. Some of us are going to feel really glad that we're not them and that we are where we are. And none of those three is going to cut it for very long. You will never sustain the journey to rebuild broken walls on those three things. But when we get mad, that's when all of a sudden we begin to get the energy that sustains itself to begin to help people to rebuild the walls. And we get angry with the injustices of the world. We get angry with the powers that come in and bully people for the circumstances that break the walls. When we get mad enough, that's a good point. Anger is not a bad thing in this context. And then we spoke about the prayer. Theologically, a great prayer that Nehemiah prays. It covers all the bases. Theologically, people study this wonderful prayer but that didn't really, I don't think, impress God, the fact that theologically he was right on the button there. But it was the passion of the prayer that really got God's attention. And that's what, you don't have to pray big theological prayers to be heard of God. That's what we did last week. Today I have hopefully three more P's for you. First of all, I'd like to talk about the program. Then I'd like to talk about the preparation. And then lastly, the promise. Let's talk about the program. I guess a better word for this might be the plan, but 
But I've got to use that in, in another sermon for you in another time. So let's stick with the word, the program. The program is not necessarily the plan as it is set out. The program is what's going on in here. We need, I think, to reprogram our thinking. We need to come with a new mind. God cannot use you with the old mindset. Now, if you ask a person, you ask Brian Langer where he starts when he wants to build a building. He starts with the plan and he starts with the end in mind. He doesn't start with a foundation. He has a picture in his mind of what the end product has to look like. That's where the plan and the program has to begin. It has to begin with the end in mind. Let me remind you in our lives where the end is. The end is not at the end of your life. The end is when you get to stand before God and tell the story of your life. That's the end in mind. And I hope that we have a decent story to tell him. Now, I know we have to tell him a story because I've read Matthew 25, where it's the story of the parables, the parable Jesus told of, of the king who gave stuff to people and said, go and invest this. And when I come back, I want to hear your story. So he gave to one, two million, another to five, one million, two million, five million. And then on the day of accounting, he came back and he said to these guys, okay, I'm back now. What have you done with what I gave you? How did you spend the money that I gave you to invest? Let's see what you have done with what I gave you. And each one of those people had to stand before the king and had to tell the story of their life. People, that's the end that I have in mind. Every one of us, whether we like it or not, will one day stand before God and we're going to have to tell the story of our lives. Some of us have a great story to tell. Some of those people that are suffering in Afghanistan who may stand before God because they've had their lives taken, they're going to have an incredible story to tell. Oh, my word. What a story to tell, to be a martyr for God and God to just be so overwhelmed with their, with their passion and their courage. And you're going to say, man, that is an awesome story. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I have a special thing prepared for you. Every one of us will have to stand before God one day to tell the story of our lives. I sure hope that we have a decent story to tell. And the question is simply going to be, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with the talents? What did you do with your time? What did you do with your treasure? What did you use all that I gave you for? And I sure hope, people, that we get to tell a good story. Maybe you need to write a better story. Maybe I do too. But this programming has got to begin in the mind. Now we've often said in our church, how the mind is so important. Because out of what you think, you do. Everything you do comes from something that you think. Everything that you do. Every action comes from something that has gone on upstairs that has told you to do that particular thing. Every action starts with a thought. So if you want to change your behavior, don't try and change your behavior. Change your mind. Because out of whatever you think, determines what you do, change what you think, and what you do will come naturally. This is why New Year's resolutions don't cut it. I had a New Year's resolution I was going to lose five kgs in the first couple of months. I put on five kgs, you know, because it was, a, it was just a, a power of thought. It was just my good intention being verbalized, but it never amounted to much because it was all in my behavior and not in my mind. If I can change my mind about the way I think about things, about people, about issues... It will change the way that we live. It begins in a reprogramming of our mind. That's why Romans 12 verse 2 says simply this. Be transformed by what? 
the renewing of your, of your minds. You want to be transformed in any way, it begins here, with a decision here. Now, this uh, changing of our minds is a tough thing, especially when you've lived under hundreds of years of Babylonian rule. And you would have to come and Nehemiah had been in Babylon and he had been a part of that whole culture all of his life. And God had to change his mind before he could change his behavior. And the people who were back in Jerusalem had exactly the same thing. And Nehemiah was clever enough to know this. You read his first passages of, of, in the scriptures of his talks with the people. It wasn't about rebuilding walls, it was about changing the way they think. It was about laying a, bit of, a little bit of guilt, which is a lousy motivator to make people change. But he used it so well to say that this is a disgrace, the way that we are living. And all of a sudden, this, this really confrontational, robust way of communicating with the people, all of a sudden, wow, you mean that? They were first offended. I'm sure they were deeply offended by what he had to say. But it was the beginning point to change their mind in order to change their behavior. It begins in the mind. A hundred, two hundred years of Babylon can change you and it needs to change your mind. They began in Babylon. Nehemiah, what I'm sure told you about the, the Jewish people who'd been there in exile. They walked like them, talked like them, behaved just like Babylonians because they'd been there so long. And so the change of mind is absolutely critical. Now there's two ways to change your mind. The first way is what we call the Vesuvius model of changing mind. I referred a little bit to it last week. And that's where you get warned. Now, you know the story of Vesuvius. was a, this volcano. People lived on the edge of this volcano. And the volcano grumbled all the time. And for a while, people thought, oh, it's going to blow, it's going to blow. But it never blew. And they began to get comfortable with the warnings that this mountain was, was, was sending to them to say, there will come a day when I will blow. But the people chose to ignore the grumblings and the little smoke coming out the top of the mountain. Until one day, a bunch of fishermen were out at sea fishing and Vesuvius blew. You know, the first thing that changed was their minds. They suddenly realized that all those threats and all that stuff now was true, but now the devastation was to happen. I see that in people's lives, don't you? They listen to sermon after sermon after sermon. And they go in and they come out exactly the same. They'll acknowledge it. They'll applaud it. They'll affirm it. And yet it does not change them because it hasn't really. But one day, one day when Vesuvius erupts in their lives, all of a sudden their minds will change because they will have to change. The second way is a much better way. The second way to change your mind, if the first one is Vesuvius erupting, the second way for you to change your mind is to listen to the story. There's great stories out there. If you listen to the darn story, it could save you a lot of pain. Just think of David. He's David sitting on his throne. He's had an affair with Bathsheba. He's had Bathsheba's husband killed. Bathsheba's moved into the palace and she falls pregnant with a child. Okay, not quite in that order, but you know what I mean. Anyway, um, he, she... she she gives birth to this child, and he, and he thinks he's actually got away with it. He thinks, man, I'm a man after God's own heart. Nobody's going to... Look, I've lived here all this time now, and nobody, no Vesuvius has erupted here. I'm doing fine. Until one day, there's a knock on the door of his palace, and in walks Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet says to David, Hey, David, I've got a story I need to tell you. And he tells him a story. David said, Oh, I like stories. Tell me the story. So Nathan begins the story. He said, there was once a wealthy man who had a lot of sheep. 
He had a visitor. He needed a sheep to give to his visitors to, for them to eat. So his cook probably came and said, hey, you know, which sheep would you like? You've got hundreds. And, and, the, and the king said, no, I, I don't want any of my sheep. I want that sheep. And it belonged to a man who only had one sheep, and he loved the sheep. He kept it in his house. He fed it by hand. He said, and the cook said, but, but sir, king, you've got hundreds. Why would you take his? He's only got one. He said, don't argue with me. Take his sheep. And so he took his sheep, the story goes, and Nathan said he killed the sheep and he fed his guests. By the time he's finished the story, David is on the edge of his throne. He says, I am so angry. That man should die. Who is that man? And Nathan turns his figure and says, David, <clears throat> you are the man. And David realized what he was saying. You have taken somebody else's wife. You could have any woman in Israel. And there's some beautiful girls out there. But you chose that man's. You had him killed. And you took his wife, David. You are the man. But here's the beauty of the story. When David heard that and realized what was happening, he fell off his throne. He repented, restored his relationship with God. Sure, he had to pay the price of the consequence. The consequences don't always go away. But he restored with God because of the power of a story. I am convinced. If you listen to the story of Nehemiah, it may just do the same for you. Especially in the world in which we live, we so ab absolutely need it, do we not? We live in a world of broken walls that are crying out for the church to please do something. Please come in and, and just help us to rebuild the walls of our broken, messed up lives. And maybe we need our hearts to be broken. We need to listen to the story. Now, I'm pretty sure, Nehemiah, apparently in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, I told them about the gracious hand of God. That's a great story. That's a great story. In fact, that's a whole bunch of great stories. And when he started telling these people who were so, at, at first, ambivalent, they were, they were ignoring him, they were disinterested, they were hopeless, and he just told them probably story after story about the gracious hand of God. Let me tell you what the gracious hand of God did here. Let me tell you what the gracious hand of God. And before long, the power of those stories changed the minds, I believe, of those people to get them ready to go. How did it happen? He didn't change their behavior. He changed their minds. That's the first thing that needs to change. The second thing, that in programming our mind. We have to program our minds, people, for success. You know, people with a defeated attitude are never used by God. Have you noticed that? If you've got a defeatist attitude or a negative spirit towards the things of God, I'm going to tell you, God has to change that before He can use you. Now, I know that because I've, I've read the story of Gideon. Here's Gideon. The angel comes to him and says, Hail, mighty warrior. And Gideon says, Who are you talking to? No, I'm talking to you. You can't be talking to me because I'm nothing like a mighty warrior. I'm the weakest man of the weakest tribe of the weakest nation of Israel. I'm certainly not a mighty warrior. Maybe you've got the wrong address here, he says to the angel. And he came with every excuse under the sun as to why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. And so he did his test, you know, the, the test of, of the fleeces and all those kind of things. And before God could use him to achieve what God wanted him to achieve, he had to get rid of his negative spirit. Okay? And then you have Moses. Man, there's Moses at the burning bush arguing with God. God said, Moses, I need you to go deliver the Israelites from the hand of Pharaoh. Is that all right? And Moses said, you've got the wrong address. 
I could never do that. Don't you know I'm a wanted man in Egypt? Don't you know I can't speak, I stutter? Don't you know that I have never had this experience? Don't you know I am a nobody? I've lived out here in the desert for 40 years. I am nobody. I think you God have the wrong man. And God said, I'm not the wrong man. And God had to, through the conversation at the burning bush, change not his behavior, but change his mindset from being negative to them saying, okay, God, with your help, I'm sure I can do it. And then you look at the people that Nehemiah would have spoken to, and they would have said, Nehemiah, why us? Why do we have to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? We didn't break them. Well, we're not responsible for this. We didn't knock them down. And if we build them up again, some other guy's going to come and knock it down again anyway. And they would have come at Nehemiah with all those excuses. And Nehemiah wouldn't take it. Um, we've got to get rid of this defeated attitude. And I'm convinced that for many Christians, their Christian lives have been a very disappointing experience. I think I know why. Because they keep telling God, I can't do it. And God says, what do you mean? What do you mean you can't do it? You don't have to do it. All you have to do is, David, can you kill that giant? And David said, yeah, I can do it. God says, well, all I need you to do is pick up the stone and throw it. And so David picked up the stone and he threw the stone at the giant. And I, I've often said, you know, how that, that when he threw that stone, even if that stone had come out the side of his catapult, and gone at a 90 degree angle, God would have brought that stone around like this. Because David was not going to kill Goliath. God was going to kill Goliath. He just happened to use David to throw the stone. Moses, can you open the Red Sea? Moses probably said, no, probably not, Lord. You know, I can't do that. And God said, well, all you've got to do is pick up your stick. You do the possible, and I, God, will do the impossible. God will never ask you people to do what you can't do. He's not playing a game here. He knows you're human. He will only ask you to do what he knows you can do. And he'll do the rest if you do what you can do. And so as soon as we start developing this this more positive attitude, the sooner the better. The third aspect of programming programming our minds is we're going to program our mind for the cost. There is no blessing without sacrifice. We'll talk about that next time. There's no blessing without sacrifice. If there is, it's because somebody has sacrificed before you. And when Jesus called us, he said, what does he said? Take up your cross and follow me. You see, you too have a cross. Jesus has carried his. He now says, you too have a cross. And I have this picture in my mind of Jesus hanging on the cross and dying. And everybody saying, wow, that's incredible. Until they look around the floor and there's a cross with your name on. And Jesus said, hey, take up your cross. Not his. Not hers, not theirs, your cross and follow me. There are a thing, and I spoke at a youth conference a while back, and it was so much fun because I drew a, a comparison between fans and followers. I'm sure you've heard that analogy before. Jesus had a lot of fans when he was on earth. And people who would cheer, right away, Jesus, so cool, Jesus. You feed us, Jesus. You heal us, Jesus. You tell us nice stories, Jesus. Man, we were... We're your fans, man. And then one day Jesus says, sees all this crowd of fans, thousands of them, and he's not impressed with the crowd. Jesus is never impressed with the crowd. You know that. We're impressed with the crowd. We think the more the merrier. Jesus didn't think like that. And so he thought, I need to sort out the men from the boys over here. And so he says, here's a statement for you to ponder. And it dwindled the crowd. He says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross 
Now, of course, that's an item of torture. You know, he didn't take, say, take up your celipostropedic bed. He said, take up your cross. And a cross is an item of death. You die on a cross. And Paul says, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's what meaning to take up your cross. Now, let me just say this. If you want to say, am I re- how do I know if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm carrying my cross? How do I know if I'm not just a fan of Jesus and cheering for Jesus because I want to get something from him? That's what the crowd was doing. He had fed them. And when Jesus saw them the next day, he knew these are just a bunch of fans. Plenty of them. Let's get rid of the fans and leave us with the followers. Because they wanted something from Jesus. Man, there's a thing. How many people come to church today because they want something from him? We get ourselves stuck on these prosperity issues of, if I give to God that, man, I'm going to get something from him. Oh, people, don't fall for that rubbish. God calls us to sacrifice. Take up your cross, be a follower, and not a fan of Jesus. So, program your mind for the cost, because there will be one. Okay, let's talk about the program. Let's talk about the preparation now, the next P. Two aspects I want to share with you. First of all, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to prepare your heart to be purged. You know, when Nehemiah looked at the walls of Jerusalem, he said, guys, we've got to rebuild these walls. We can't rebuild these walls upon the rubble of last generation stuff. We've got to get this place cleaned up. And so Nehemiah sets everybody to work, and the first thing they had to do was remove the rubble of the failures and the disappointments of the past. Then he said, when it's all clean, we can clean up those bricks and we'll be able to use them again, but right now we have to build a strong foundation upon a clean surface, get rid of the rubble. Wow. You want to be used of God in this messed up world? You want to be involved in mission outreach from your church? then you need to clean up your act as well. You've got to get purged your heart. You've got to get rid of the rubble, the disappointments, the disillusions, the the disappointed and the defeatedness. You've got to get rid of that stuff. Let me tell you a a quick story. I was invited a while back to speak at a family camp. And I went to this family camp and I prepared my little sermons and I was ready to do my thing. And on the first night I get up to do my thing and I start my sermon and it it was like dead. Man, I tried so hard. I tried to preach it up, but they just stared at me. Something like you do. Just stare at me. And it was like dead as anything. And I realized that I wasn't cutting it. So afterwards, I I was speaking to some people over coffee, and and I heard about their church. The church had been disappointed by the previous pastor. They'd had a devastation, a huge moral failure. I didn't even know about this stuff. And this church was living in a, in a disillusioned, disappointed, and defeated lifestyle because of this thing, you see. Anyway, I thought to myself, you know what you need to do? You need to listen to the parable of Max Lucado. I love the story. Max Lucado tells the story about the sack of stones. I'm sure you've heard of that. It's a great story. He says that on the day that you were born, you were given the sack to carry around. At first, you don't know what it's for. And so you just carry the sack with you until one day when you're about three or four years old, somebody says something mean to you. And so what you do is you say, oh, I know what the sack is for. And you pick up a stone and you put it in the sack. And as you get older, people are ugly to you. People refer horribly to you. The bullies do their thing. 
And every time there's a failure, a disappointment, or a disillusionment, you pick up a stone and you put it in your sack and you carry it through life. Well, the sack begins to get a little bit heavy. So you try and get rid of the sack of stones, of all the guilt and the shame and everything that's happened. So you go to a psychologist. I have nothing against psychologists, by the way. But you sit in the psychologist's office, you pay them a lot of money, and you take out the stone one by one. Let me tell you about the stone of defeat and, and my, the stone of this disillusionment, the stone of my failure. And then at the end of the session, you put them all back in and you walk out a little bit less money in your pocket. And it doesn't work. Sometimes can't have nothing against counseling. Counseling is a great thing. But if that's what you want to do, you'll never get rid of your sack of stones. So you go to church and you sit, bring your sack of stones, you sit down in the pew, and somebody like me gives you a whole lot more stones. <laughs> Because people like me know how to lay guilt on people like you. We can make you feel really bad. And you will walk out of there with a much heavier sack of stones and you think, well, what am I going to do with this thing? Well, let me tell you what you do. There's no rule that you even have to carry it. You can just put it down and walk away. Why are you carrying your sack of stones? Why why do we do that? Why do we carry this disillusionment, disappointment and defeat with us all our lives? And it becomes who we are. It becomes our identity. We become identified with our defeats and our disillusionments rather than with our joys and vision. And we die a very miserable, philosophical, psychological, and spiritual death. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The simple truth is, you give your sack of stones Jesus. He knows what to do with them. He didn't die just for your sins. He died for your sack of stones as well. Because that's the magnitude and the wonder of His grace. Anyway, as I saw this congregation, I thought, you know what? These people, I need to change my sermons. So I worked the whole night. And then what I did was this. Yeah, I went down to the, the river. And there were probably 200 people there. And I got 200 stones. And I put them on every chair. With a pencil or a pen on every chair. And when people walked in, they they, they looked at the chair, there was a stone and a pen, and I thought, what the heck is this? And then I told them the story of the sack of stones. I said, guys, you're carrying spiritual sacks of stones. Before we can move ahead in this, we've got to dump that stuff. So I said to them, amongst much snort and drana, you know, they're sitting and said, I want you to write every defeat, every disappointment, every discipline, I want you to write it on your sack of stones. And I'm laying it on them about this stuff. And they're sitting in there crying, they're writing all this stuff on this thing. Then I sent a couple of young men with sacks around the building, and they collected all the stones. And I said, follow me to the river. And I walked them all down to the river, and I said, these young men are going to throw these sacks into the river. Does anybody want that stone back? Because if you want it, you better get it now, because it's going into the river. And we threw those sacks of stones into the river. Now, that was just a physical act. It was probably... Very naive, but I've got to tell you, something happened in those people when they said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of carrying my stupid sack of stones. I'm sick and tired of, of carrying all this guilt and all this anger and all this unforgiveness. I need to dump it. And we did. Hey, now we can talk. Then I could preach my sermons better because they were on a clear base on which to move. The second thing in this area of preparation, I'm going to rush through this, is we need to prepare not just our hearts to be purged, but we need to prepare our hands to participate. There's work to be done, people. 
Don't just sit in church and sing songs and pray prayers and listen to sermons going on as much as I have nothing against that stuff. But if that's all that church is about, you have missed the point completely. You missed the point. There is a participation with your hands. In chapter 3, and I'm going to urge you, I haven't done a long Bible reading tonight, I'm going to urge you to go and read the story and read it and read it again. Chapter 3, Nehemiah comes to them and he says, okay people, you need now to participate in the building of the wall. So he comes with a plan, he says, this family build this section, this family this section, this family this section. If you read chapter 3, I just did a quick count now while I was sitting there. Chapter 3, there are two words that come up over 21 times. I could already... I quickly found 21. You know what the two words are? Next to. And next to this family was this family. And next to that family was another family. And they built this section of the wall. And then next to that family was another family. They built that section of the wall. We do this, people, next to one another. There's no isolation here. There's nobody doing his own little thing. Everybody is doing it next to somebody else. And when everybody in the church commit themselves to working next to, then all of a sudden the, person, the, the, the army that is the church is just magnificent. And there is nothing more beautiful than a church working well. And people buying in with their hearts being purged and their hands ready to participate. You know, within an army, if you have one person, you have a soldier. If you have two people, you have an army. <laughs> And you know what it says in the Bible about that? It says one will put a thousand to flight, and one will two, two put ten thousand to flight. The guy who wrote that obviously didn't do maths, or he does maths like me. Because I thought one would put a thousand, two would put two thousand, but apparently not. Because when one puts one, two puts ten thousand to flight. People, we are, in a sense, a beautiful army. Not a vindictive or a, you know, that kind of army, but we are an army. That we best when we work together. But there are some things in our personality and our time that can trash us in our little army of, of people. Let me give you three tests that will come to you very quickly. The first test to people in the church is they want to shine, whine, and recline. Those are the three tests of every church. Some people just want to shine, you know. And, I, ooh, you know, and, and they lose their blessing when you try and shine. Moses tried that once. Moses lived almost a perfect time until one day he thought, I need to shine. And God said to Moses, will you please just speak to the rock? And out of the rock I will send water. And Moses didn't do that. He thought, man, if, if I do that, God's going to get all the glory. You know? And it's cool, God. I want you to get the glory. But I remember last time we, we did the whole water thing, I hit the rock. And people applauded me. They thought I was really somebody. So I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do that again. And he hit the rock and water came out. God gave them the water. But he lost his blessing because he thought, I will touch God's glory. You do not want to touch God's glory. It belongs to him and to him alone. Don't try and touch the glory of God because you lose the blessing. And that as a result, Moses never got to go into the promised land, the place that he so wanted to be a part of. The second one, so we don't want to shine. They want to be wine. I don't do winers very well. You know, neither does God. The children of Israel were continually whining in the desert until God got so fed up with them. We don't have food. We want to go back to Egypt. 
God is just playing a joke with us. Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. Moses, we don't like you. Give us another leader so we can go back to Egypt. They whined continually. Well, go and read what God did to them every time they whined. There was punishment for those who whined. One of them was the snakes that God sent amongst them. God does not do whiners very well. And for the church to really be what the church needs to do, we've got to stop the whining. And then there's the reclining thing. You know, we want a, a lazy boy kind of a church, a, a church that entertains me nicely, you know, a church that is my kind of music and my kind of ambience. And, uh, you know, and we recline, we get comfortable in church. And the more comfortable we get, the less character we develop. Characters never developed in comfort. You don't develop character in a, in, a, in a lazy boy watching DSTV. You don't get it. You get character when you're out there facing the opposition and working, participating next to the people around you. Is that all right so far? I have one last thing you know, that I need to share, if you don't mind. Let's talk about the last one. Let's talk about the promise. We've talked about the, the program. We've talked about participation. Let's talk about the promise of God. Because what is it that kept Nehemiah going? I'm intrigued with the man, Nehemiah. And a great opposition from all the people that were naysayers. Amongst the Sanballat, Tobiah, and all those guys who stood directly against Nehemiah. What is it that kept him going? He didn't have to be there. He could have said, blow this, I'm going back to Persia. I've got a comfortable house in Persia. I've got a super job back in Persia. I've got lots of money. I've got, I got, I got everything I need back in Persia. What the heck am I doing here? And he didn't do that. And I'm saying, why not? What got him up every day to face the challenges of my whining people and enemies and people out there? was the promise of God, I am convinced. What is it that kept him going? In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 20, he says this, The God of heaven will give us success. He's telling the people because they're whining. So how do you know, Nehemiah, we're not so sure you can pull this thing off. We look weak, we don't have all the resources. Nehemiah says, it doesn't matter. The God of heaven will give us success. That's a promise. From God. He had obviously heard something directly from God. We don't know what it was. But for him to say, the God of heaven is going to give us success, it must have had something to do with something that God told him himself. Now you know how powerful the promises of God are. They're incredible. The promises of God to you are just amazing. I was telling a bunch of young people just today about Pilgrim's Progress. I love that book. You've got to read it. It's awesome. And at one particular place, Pilgrim is on his way to the Celestial City and, uh, and he sees a, a sign saying shortcut to the Celestial City. So he decides he wants to take it. So he goes along. There are no shortcuts to spirituality, people. Don't let anyone think there are. It's a long, hard haul. Anyway, he, he decides to try and take the shortcut and it gets him into a lot of trouble. It starts getting dark. He finds himself in a quagmire. He, he's lost. So he finds a little place as dry as it can be for him to, to sleep. He lies down only to wake up in the morning to the face of giant despair. Giant despair grabs him by the scruff of the neck, neck and drags him off to Doubting Castle. And he throws him in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. There are a lot of pe people in church there today in despair. Now they all because suddenly they begin to doubt that God is with them. They begin to doubt that God is true. They begin to doubt the promises of God. And Pilgrim found himself in there. And every day, giant's despair would come down to the dungeon and would slap him around and beat him up and then walk out laughing. Hey, it's what doubts do to us, do they not? 
They come every day. Did God really say that? Or were you just imagining it? You know, I'm beginning to doubt that God really even loves me. Does God remember me? You know, and we begin to doubt God and it slaps us around. It causes great pain and anxiety to us spiritually. And then as pilgrimers, after days of being beaten by the giant despair in Doubting Castle, he suddenly remembers, he remembers back at the cross where he saw Jesus and the burden of, of his sin rolled off his back. And he sees Jesus and then an angel came and gave him a scroll. He never really read the scroll, but he put the scroll in his pocket. And then as he's sitting in the dungeon in Doubting Castle, hearing the giant despair about to come down, he remembers the scroll. And he pulls it out and he begins to read it. For goodness sake, it's some of the promises of God to him. And he reads about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All of a sudden, the light begins to come on in the dungeon. And he says, I will always be with you. I will, I will guide you. My right hand will protect you. All of a sudden, the lights come on. And as the more he's reading of the promises of God, the greater his spirit gets, the stronger he becomes. And his limbs become strong again. And as he's continuing to read the promises of God, the doors open and the light shines in. And giant despair comes down. He can't handle the light and he runs out of the castle. He runs across the field, leaving giant's despair in his horrible, doubting castle. And he escapes, all because of the power of the promise of God. People, people, people. In my hand here, I have a record of the promises of God. You read them? You hold on to them? Because in this book are so many incredible promises. That God has made to you and to me if we would just read them and believe them. I'm done, but I have one more thing I have to say about the promises of God. You know, the promises of God are permanent. It doesn't change his mind. He's not like us, where we have a very poor track record of keeping our promises. Uh, the track record of God is perfect. It's it's a it's not only permanent, but his track record is totally perfect. He's never reneged on a promise, never failed one. His, his promises to you are, are personal. That's the rhema promise that, that God gives to you when you're sitting quietly and you're, having your, and you're reading and, you, and you're fellowshipping with God and you hear that whisper of God, not in the supernatural, the fire and the lights and, the, and everything like that, but in that quiet, still voice that God speaks to you and he gives you the promises for your life. And they are yours. They are personal. But, you know, we read the promises that, of God to Joshua. And wherever your foot shall go, Joshua, I'll be with you. Man, I want to claim that promise. Only problem is it's not mine to claim. That was God's promise to Joshua. Go and get your own darn promises. That's his promise. We have the promise God gives to Moses. Moses said, I will go with you before you into the Egypt and all that. And we're very quick to claim somebody else's promise and say, well, that's God's promise to me. Nah, it's not. No, it's not. You've got to go and get your own promise. You've got to do like they did and spend time with God and hear His voice and fellowship with Him and get to know Him to hear the rhema, the God-breathed promise that God has for you personally. You can confirm that promise with the other promises. That's really cool. You can do that. But you're not allowed to claim them because they're not yours to claim. You've got to get your own. And so this rhema promise of God is not just... It's just a permanent, perfect person. It's incredibly powerful. There's, there's Nehemiah walking towards uh, Jerusalem. 
And uh, somebody comes and says, hey, Nehemiah, where are you going? <laughs> and Nehemiah says, no, I'm going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the guy laughs and says, yeah, you, you and which contractor? And he says, no, no, not, not me and the contractor. I just need the problem, just me and the promise of God. <laughs> People laughed at that. And he's Joshua. And he said, Joshua, where are you going? And Joshua says, no, I'm going to take down the walls of Jericho. And so he says, yeah, now you and how much dynamite, you know? He said, no, 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 just me and the rhema promise of God. And then there's Moses who goes, hey, Moses, where are you going? And Moses says, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to take the children of Israel out of Egypt. Ah, yeah, you and whose army? And Moses said, no, just me and the rhema promise of God. You want to change the world around you? You want to be out there in the mission, whatever that mission, we'll talk about that in another time, whatever that mission may look like, all you need is the rhema, the spoken, the personal promise of God to you. And you've got to find it. You've got to search for it. You've got to listen for it. And on the basis of that promise, you're going to be fine. There's one thing better than a promise, though, and that is his presence. I love this. You know, if you look at Exodus 33, and you see how, how Moses was pleading on behalf of the children of Israel, God wanted to wipe them out. And he said, Moses, I'll make of you a great man. And then I'll wipe them out, and Moses will start all over again. And Moses said, God, you can't do that. Because the nations of the world are looking at you, and they know who you are, and you've never reneged ever on a promise. You promised to take these scoundrels to the, nation, to the promised land. You promised that. You, and God said, I repent of what I said. I will do that. But I will send an angel in front of them. Go and read Exodus 33. It's amazing. And God says, I will send an angel before the people, and I'll set, let the angel take them. But as for me, I will watch them from a distance, says God. And then Moses says, God, that's not good enough. I would have been happy with an angel. You know, oh, that would be cool. An angel leading us there. But Moses wasn't happy. He stopped. He says, God, I'm not taking one step further without the assurance that your presence will go with me. And with your presence, I can do anything. I'm not taking one step further. That's a good place to end. That's a good place. Maybe we need to make that declaration tonight as we program our minds, as we prepare our hearts, as we purge our hearts and prepare our hands, and we hold on to the promises of God and the beauty of the wonder of His promised presence with us. Don't go anywhere without it. Okay, I think I'm done. I think we need to pray. Father, thank you for this incredible story of this incredible man. We learn so much from his life. I pray, Lord, that we would learn what it means to change the program of our mind, to program our minds that with you we can do anything. Program our mind away from the defeatist negative attitude that we may have had and through disappointments, disillusions, drop that sack of stones and let's move on, God, to do what you've called us to do, believing that you will give us success. We pray we purge our hearts. We pray we prepare our hands well for the work that is before us. We don't want to be fans of yours because fans just cheer for Jesus and then walk away when there's something to do. May we be true followers and disciples of Jesus. May we hold on to your promises that are just so awesome, believing that your presence in our lives makes all of the difference. Thank you.
that you love us so much. And we pray we would fulfill your purpose for our generation. And we ask it in your name. Amen.